This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, Face the Nation podcast listeners. It's Margaret Brennan. Today on Twitter Spaces, we hear fascinating behind-the-scenes details of what congressional leaders were doing during the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol from the authors of Unchecked, Karun Demirjian and Rachel Bade. Their new book details the two impeachments of former President Trump. We hope you will enjoy, so take a listen. Hello, Twitter. This is Margaret Brennan, um, moderator of Face the Nation, and I'm here for our latest Twitter space, I'm joined by the Washington Post's Karun Demirjian and Politico's Rachel Bate, the authors of Unchecked, which is a new book that comes out Tuesday, I think. I saw you tweet about that, Rachel. Yes, we're um, very excited. Uh, you should be. Um, and it examines Congress's failed efforts to impeach former President Donald Trump. And of course, the events of that second impeachment are top of mind for all of us because we just watched the January 6th hearing yesterday, uh, looking at that attack on the Capitol. So welcome, ladies. So good to have you both. Good to be Thank here. You. Absolutely. Um, so I, I appreciate you guys making the time. I and, and I'm interested in so much of basically the history that you've compiled here. Um, you have the two impeachments of Donald Trump, neither of which of course, ended in a conviction. Um, and you really do an autopsy. But I want to focus in on on the one following the events of January 6th. Rachel, we saw the conclusion of this. And in my view, it was kind of just like an exclamation point on the sentence by issuing the subpoena that the committee said they'd proven what they sought out to prove in their view. But we know the president can defy the subpoena. And if Republicans take the majority after these upcoming midterm races, that could be canceled in a new Republican-led majority House come January. So why do you think they bothered with the subpoena? Well, I think right now, the January 6th committee, obviously they've done a fantastic job in terms of investigating, calling in Trump's inner circles, really fighting down subpoenas, which in our book, we talk a lot about how they didn't do this uh, during those really critical two impeachments of Trump um, and the consequences of that. But I think what they're trying to do right now with this Trump subpoena is it's kind of a check the box 
kind of move. I don't think anybody is under any perception that the former president is going to show up and testify. Although, could you imagine <laughs> what sort of blockbuster hearing that would be? Um, but yeah, I think obviously they want to be able to say that they reached out to everybody and they gave everybody a chance to tell their story and to give them a chance to grill uh, Trump's inner circle and the potential, you know, ex-president himself. Uh, but I think at this point, nobody's really expecting anything right. to happen with this. No, they're not. But what you just said there was interesting that you think it's sort of making up for perhaps having not been as drawn out and deliberate with the two impeachment attempts previously. Yeah, that's right. And that's like one of the main thrusts of our book, Unchecked. Um, there's this sort of pre- preconceived notion out there that the reason Trump's two impeachments failed was because Republicans were so loyal to him and protected him and turned a blind eye to his misdeeds and that Democrats did everything in their power to turn the nation against him. But our reporting very much indicates from interviewing more than 250 people for this book, people who were uh, in the rooms for these critical meetings, et cetera, on both sides of the aisles, is that Democrats really pulled a lot of punches and they will privately tell you that they did sort of a half-baked impeachment, perhaps not as much as they could have done to lay out the strongest case possible that Trump was dangerous. And because of that, he sort of emerged stronger after the first impeachment. And even after the second, which was clearly, you could argue, the most important impeachment uh, in history after he incited a riot on the Capitol, Mm -hmm. it disappeared as quickly, you know, as it began. Uh, And so we argue that Democrats didn't go as far as they could have. And Kroon, I mean, in some ways that brings us to kind of where we are now with that broader challenge to, you know, should Democrats and the Biden administration go further this time? Are there lessons to be learned here? And in some ways, a subpoena could, in theory, just throw the ball into the court of the Justice Department. Um, And is that the right way to view it? Or or do you see something else here uh, at work? You know, is this just a challenge to the Biden Justice Department to make a move? Well, yes, but that's not the whole story. So basically, we have this moment where you've seen the January 6th committee take all these steps that are almost like corrective action for what they didn't do during the second impeachment of President Trump. They've pulled in Republican witnesses. They're issuing subpoenas. They're following them up. But they are doing it in a very different environment. Remember, the person who's in the White House right now, the person whose administration's Justice Department it is, is, if anything, friendly to their cause. They are not going after a president who's an adversary right now. They're not tackling Trump and Trump's Justice Department. This is Biden and Biden's Justice Department that's in office that, you know, is in many cases shown that they are ready to take the football and keep running with it through the courts when the, the committee presents them with evidence that, that they think or or just with a person who has been too recalcitrant and too stubborn to show up for a subpoena. That's a very different environment. And while yeah, it, it's definitely a, an attitude change and it's definitely a, a different sort of a willingness to go all the way. It's not something that can erase the precedent that was established during the previous impeachments. There still isn't, even if everything goes perfectly for the January 6th committee and this goes all the way through the Justice Department, you've still got those two precedents of impeachments where those things didn't happen and where you've got um, a Congress that folded its cards and shied away when it would have been a really, really hard fight because the guy in the Oval Office was going to fight you all the way and use every argument he could have that comes with the privilege of that position to try to do it. 
Mm-hmm. The other thing I would I would jump in and say is, you know, the January 6th committee, they're doing all these things now, but they really lost the moment after that second impeachment. I mean, there was a moment after January 6th where Republicans were turning on Trump um, and there was like, you know, a real sort of uh, crisis of conscience happening amongst Republicans about what do they do about this former president? And he was clearly the most hurt politically that he had ever been. Mm-hmm. You have to wonder what would have happened had the impeachers in the second impeachment, you know, subpoenaed people like Mike Pence's aides who were with the vice president in the garage hiding him from the danger as people were trying to find him and kill him. Um, Would that have changed enough senators votes to actually get a conviction and bar him from office running again? We'll never know, obviously, but clearly Trump is on the rebound right now in terms of uh, wanting to run again for president. um, And Republicans are still looking at him as their party leader uh, mm-hmm. what would have happened if they had gone after him in a more vulnerable moment. But also remember, that Trump is not the end measure of all this. I mean, yes, we are focusing on Donald Trump. He's clearly the main actor and the main character in this play, right? And we're still focusing on him, even though he's not the president anymore. But remember, it's not just about whether or not it works to make sure that Trump faced some form of justice or accountability. It's also, what are, is the impeachment that we're left with after all of this? Because remember, we're going to have, a, it's looking very likely at this juncture that the House, that the GOP will win in the House. And they there is now, you know, a road of cut corners and pulled punches and various other things that they can use to take advantage of mm-hmm. to sharpen their knives for President Biden. And they've made pretty clear that that's their intention to do that. And the January 6th committee's work on Trump d- doesn't change that. That's all still there for them to take advantage of, to exploit, really, um, to yeah. try to do a different sort of impeachment against with the parties flipped. OK, so let's jump to impeachment per se as a process. We can come back to some of the behind the scenes details that I know you have about January 6th later, because I, I find that fascinating. But if we go towards impeachment here, I mean, you essentially seem to be making the argument that the process is broken and inherently political or politicized or it it is headed in that direction and will be even more so. But if you move back the timeline, I mean, people have been making that argument for years. um, And certainly the Clinton impeachment, you know, was very political in that moment. What do you think was so different about the two impeachments you did the autopsies of? Uh, it's a great question because, yeah, the Clinton uh, impeachments, you know, very much have been covered as, you know, one party pushing an impeachment while the other party was saying absolutely not. But even if you look at Clinton's impeachment um, at the beginning, you know, we did we did a deep dive into to the previous impeachments to sort of compare uh, mm-hmm. Republicans, uh, you know, joined with Democrats in multiple meetings before the impeachment started to talk about rules of the road, uh, uh, benefits and sort of rights they were going to give the minority, benefits and rights they were going to give the president to defend himself. They tried to iron out a process and the process that they actually agreed to was the exact same process that Peter Rodino had used in Nixon's impeachment, which he had bent over backwards to write with Republicans because uh, he knew he would need Republicans to be successful in that venture. With this impeachment, Republicans, we have the scene in the book where they're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Pelosi had just gone on TV and announced that she's going to be starting an impeachment inquiry. And Kevin McCarthy is literally in his room with his top deputies and Jim Jordan and such. And they're like, is this real? Is it not? They've been talking about this, but they haven't really done it. Like, they're totally confused. And then the Democrats, not only did they not sort of tell Republicans what was going on, uh, but because of the process they laid out without certain rights for the president and for the minority, Kevin McCarthy was able to take people like Jamie Herrera Butler, moderates, uh, people who were really skittish about what they were seeing Donald Trump do with Ukraine, 
and get them to toe the party line or get them back in line with the party when perhaps Jamie Herrera Butler was on the edge about why couldn't, shouldn't she vote for this impeachment? We actually have a scene in the book where she stands up and asks her party leader that. So because of these sort of shortcuts that Democrats make, um, you know, Republicans are able to sort of capitalize on that. The other big difference is that when it came to due process rights and allowing the president to call witnesses if they wanted, um, both impeachments, Nixon and Clinton's, allowed for that uh, mm-hmm. if it was wanted. And that was not something that was allowed in this impeachment and, in fact, created a huge uh, behind-the-scenes headbutting between Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff because Jerry Nadler told him privately, we report, that this is unconstitutional the way we're doing it right now. So um, there are there are very key differences, even though you can say Clinton's was very political, very clearly driven by Republicans. This one was very clearly driven by Democrats. They did sort of uh, pave this way for these shortcuts that, again, as Karin was saying, Republicans will use in the future against Biden, no doubt. So so tactically, it was a problem. But you also, I believe, referenced that there was an eye towards the politics of the moment in the upcoming presidential races, that that constrained some Democrats here. Yeah, I mean, it constrained Democrats all the way up from the very top. Nancy Pelosi was very aware of the calendar. She is somebody who, look, her, she came of age, basically, as a leader in the party while the Clinton impeachment was happening. So she's well aware that impeachments can work as a boomerang to hurt the party that's trying to do the impeaching if they're not carried out absolutely perfectly. And usually they're not. And so she basically wanted to get it out of the way and over and done with before Christmas so that you could have the the first impeachment so that there could be the entirety of the 2020 um, election season unadulterated by any sort of impeachment talk. There was kind of a similar mentality that set in even after the January 6th related impeachment because Biden was the new president and they didn't want to have this overshadowing his presidency, still mm-hmm. discussing the president of the past. Obviously, we're still doing it almost two years right. later. But at the time, everybody thought, oh, we can sweep this under the rug, which was wishful thinking. Um, but because of that, a lot of decisions were made with that political calendar in mind, with concerns about, you know, what a difficult vote. Rachel was referring to laying out the rules of the road for the impeachment and, and, and the framework for how the investigation would proceed. And the, there were times when Nancy Pelosi did not want her moderate Democrats, Democrats representing districts Trump won, to have to take difficult votes that they didn't have to then explain right. during their next elections. And so it was mainly political calculations that kind of drove the train here, right? There were legal arguments to be made for why Congress would have been in a better position, why the House would have been in a more advantageous stance to go and and enforce these subpoenas in court and sue for evidence and all of the steps that the January 6th committee is taking now. But they were kind of afraid to use the full weight of their oversight power for fear it would come back to bite them or hamstring them long term. And they'd have to keep talking about this into an election mm-hmm. season when they wanted to go back to like pocketbook kitchen table issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would just jump in and say, I don't think you can overstate how much Pelosi's fear of impeachment influenced these two impeachments very much as Karin has just laid out. I mean, uh, specifics. You know, we report in our book about a conservative Republican who I will not name at this point since, you know, we're not quite there yet on pub <laughs> date, um, who approached her on the House floor during the first impeachment and said, I'm willing to impeach Donald Trump if you go and fight for John Bolton's testimony. He was a Republican who had been hearing all these witnesses coming forward, but he wanted to hear from someone had, who had heard it from Trump's mouth directly 
like a John Dean situation, who could say Trump specifically orchestrated this quid pro quo. It was mm-hmm. coming from him, and I heard it from his mouth. They never got something like that, actually. No. The Democrats didn't. And so, you know, Pelosi, because of this timeline, this fear that if impeachment dragged into an election year, it would hurt her majority told him no she's not going to fight for him because it would take too long the other thing she sort of did and we haven't sort of hit on this yet was she wanted everything to focus only on ukraine i mean there was a ton of other trump misdeeds um him using the oval office to sort of uh pad his pocketbook right his Mm -hmm. company um there were the hush payments uh that were constituted campaign finance violations that we now know that investigation was uh, politicized because people have written books about that and that maybe Trump would have been charged about that. There were all these different threads that Democrats wanted to pull, but Pelosi said, no, we're going to focus only on Ukraine. And again, Mm -hmm. it had everything to do with the clock and the calendar uh, and not wanting to make this big case against Trump that now looking back, some Democrats think they should have done. So, The other thing that if we jump now from first impeachment to second, which was following January the 6th, you write about some of the conversations and internally within Republicans that this was a moment where it could have gone a very different direction. And in fact, that Leader McConnell felt fairly conflicted about what he was going to do. He had a series of phone calls with Liz Cheney um, about how to respond to the attack on the Capitol and what to do about it. Can yeah. you share some of that? Yeah, I mean, Mitch McConnell calling Liz Cheney, you don't call Liz Cheney if you, you know what you're going to hear when you call Liz Cheney. She was very public about her criticism of uh, former President Trump. She was very public about saying she was going to vote to impeach. I mean, if Mitch McConnell is calling her after this for counsel, it's because it's an illustration of how he was trying to let himself be convinced that it would be okay for him to actually take a position, take a vote, that was going to convict the president. And the thing that happened is that he was kind of trying to set up all these chess pieces on the board very, very cautiously to make sure that he didn't look like he was trying to push people in one direction too hard. And then Rand Paul of Kentucky sweeps in and makes him, basically forces him, Mitch McConnell was going to bring in, you know, lawyers, GOP lawyers who would argue either side to try to make a really reasonable case to his his, um, caucus. And Rand Paul demands to have this early vote about whether the trial of a former president is constitutional or not. And McConnell is kind of caught off guard. And we have this scene where, you know, his members are trying to say like, how's he going to vote? How's he going to vote? How can I vote? How should I vote? Like, they're looking for leadership, right? And even his- They're looking for political cover. They're looking for political cover, but they're also looking for the leader to lead at this point, because mm-hmm. that does matter in a moment like this, because Trump, is, even though he's not in office anymore, he's still kind of the emotional head of the party, right? And so mm-hmm. you want if, if, if everybody's going to break and go a different way, you want to know you're following somebody. And that was the job of McConnell and McCarthy. But in each circumstance, they hid from their people and didn't lead. They just kind of, you know, chickened out, basically, of that moment. McConnell's aides didn't even know how he was going to vote. And he had himself called the idea of calling the trial unconstitutional an off-ramp, like an easy procedural off-ramp that would remove yeah. the inconvenience of having to take a hard vote. And so I that's what it, he ended up doing. Yeah. I thought it oh. was interesting that one of the characters you you write about here, the, the the judge, retired judge who comes and makes the argument that they that that Paul wants to use to defang the threat, um, is someone we heard quite a lot about during the January sixth committee hearings, Judge Ludig. Yes, yes. Uh, A recurring character. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Yeah, when he was sort of um, recently sort of held up as this 
sort of hero who advised the former vice president that he cannot overturn an election, do not do this, there's no constitutionality for it, sort of hailed for that advice. But you also have to remember, yeah, this is the guy who also wrote this very influential op-ed at a critical moment after January 6th, uh, where Republicans were looking for, as Karin mentioned, a, quote, off-ramp. They didn't want to condone Trump's behavior on the 6th, but they certainly didn't want to vote to convict him. And so Luddig has this had this argument that you can't impeach a former president or, or, or even hold a impeached president who has left the office on trial in the Senate. And so it's interesting because we have this reporting in the book um, that nobody had had before about how conflicted uh, McConnell was on that argument. We have Mm -hmm. scenes in the book about how he sort of argued with his top counsel about whether this (laughs) argument made any sense. He said, why would you, why would the founders have put this ultimate check on a president in the constitution if they were going to just limit it to somebody who's in office? It didn't make sense to him. And so he sort of, again, looking at would he really vote for this? He's getting pressured by his members who are publicly saying, you know, if McConnell votes to convict Trump, he can no longer Mm -hmm. lead the party. Um, So he's sort of weighing all these different things. And again, that Rand Paul vote happens, this question on the constitutionality of whether or not you can uh, try a former president, it takes him completely off guard. Uh, He wasn't ready for it. He wasn't ready to make a decision. And when he's sort of put to the moment, uh, he votes with his party and chickens out, even though he was very skeptical of that argument. And, and you, good. I was just going to say, and you know, a similar thing. I mean, not not quite as it, it didn't take quite as long because it was a shorter process in the House. But mm-hmm. since we're talking about GOP leaders, I mean, Kevin McCarthy kind of went through a similar thing. He had been very public about his disagreements with Trump um, on the day of January sixth. He had been furious. We have many scenes where he's expressing his anger about Trump behind closed doors. But when push comes to shove, in that moment. He follows his party. He doesn't lead his party in the direction that he knows in his gut is the right thing to do and ends up, you know, taking his vote and then running and hiding in his office because he's kind of ashamed of it. I want to ask you about, you know, yesterday's hearing. We had this never before publicly seen footage of essentially the safe room where congressional leadership was taken during the attack on the Capitol. And the documentary footage was shot by Alexandra Pelosi, the daughter of the speaker, um, and you hear her conversations are chilling. I mean, not just coloring governors asking for help, but you hear her reacting when she's being told that lawmakers have to put on gas masks. Um, the lawmakers remain in the Capitol. Um, you hear all sorts of requests for help. And I wonder just what you learned about those moments um, that you have reported out in this book. Yeah, so we, I, I will say, we're going to have some new reporting from the book dropping on Sunday, right before your show. So everyone should definitely uh, tune in because we'll talk more about it then. But, you know, it was interesting because Karn and I, uh, we got a, you know, minute by minute TikTok of what the leaders of both parties were doing at Fort McNair in the book. Uh, some unreport, a lot of unreported stuff. You saw some of it again in this video. Uh, yesterday, but you're going to see a whole bunch more color uh, in our book when this excerpt runs on Sunday, which we're really excited about. But yeah, I think overall, we can talk about sort of what happened. At Fort McNair, the leaders, they were totally in the dark about what was going on. They were trying to get a hold of people at the Pentagon. They were getting railroaded. um, And even people like McConnell couldn't get in touch with um, uh, leaders at DOD. And so, you know, you have these moments, and I'm not going to get into too much detail, where both parties uh, say, 
Trump is not going to help us. We know that. We need to join together to try to save the Capitol. And so all of them come together on these phone calls and basically browbeat the Pentagon and then call Vice President Mike Pence for help, uh, calling in the National Guard. And so there's this sort of unreported role about what the leaders did on that day. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you guys a lot more details about this Sunday, but um, they, they had a major role in getting people to the Capitol for help. And so do you think that any of the security concerns have been fully addressed? I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of amazing is it it looks like there was no plan in place for a quick reaction to a threat like this against the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, look, we are arguing about who was responsible still for the events of January 6th and the mistakes that were made that should have been not made, that that the systems that should have been in place, how these very slow-moving beasts of the Pentagon should have acted faster, how various people should have been called, how the president should have done more, all of those things. But in all of that arguing, while there has been, you know, there have been a few measures that have passed through Congress to fund things a little bit more fully, it's not like we've actually seen this sort of, you know, government-wide, system-wide, full overhaul where everything is fixed now and we don't have to worry about it the next time. There's been more energy spent on the finger-pointing of whose fault it was or whether it was the former president's fault and things like that than it seems like there has been in terms of just the real investment and real overhaul of, you know, shortening the clock, running drills so that we see this stuff happening. If there's a similar attack, it wouldn't be able to metastasize and get out of control as fast as it would. Unfortunately, now that it's happened once and the fever pitch of politics is not calming down at all. There's every likelihood that it could potentially happen again. And yet that's not really the conversation that we're predominantly having now. The accountability conversation is important, but um, it has kind of taken all of the energy and the oxygen because it's been so divisive for almost two years running at this point. And we're still still having those bitter political fights about who's to blame. Now, and that's not to mention also the this notion of protecting the Electoral College, right? Beyond sort of safeguarding the physical right. structure of the Capitol, this thing that Trump did where he got, you know, was trying to recruit a, a bunch of fake uh, slates of electors to show up to Washington to steal the election. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been talking about this in Congress for a while. And now I've been on maternity leave for the past four months. But my <laughs> understanding is that still has not gotten fixed, right? There's been a lot of talk, a lot of bipartisan discussions, but like that's still an issue moving forward. So, Well, that's one of the Republican uh, criticisms of the committee and things that people like, for example, the vice president's team, Mark Short and others have said, if this was a serious congressional probe, it would also deal with the security issues. Why isn't that being dealt with? Well, yeah. <laughs> I will say that in one sense, Rachel's going to want to weigh in on this too, but um, that look, the, the committee, it's not like this is the only committee on the Hill. Like there are different pieces of this that could be handled by different sorts of um, centers. There's, there are, you know, committees that are supposed to be involved in the funding of the various uh, parts of the federal government, including uh, the legislative security apparatus. There's there's people that deal with the law writing, and they have done some of those steps. But this com- the January 6th committee is front and center, and they are trying to do what the impeachments didn't fully complete. Um, that That is the question that has been front and center for them this whole time. They're not supposed to be, you know, a overarching sweeping commission that is then going to release all kinds of legislation. This is why they came together for, and they're doing the thing that they said. Yeah. I, I was just going to say for Mark Short's criticism of the panel, it's kind of like the, uh, what is that saying? The pot calling the kettle black. I mean, <laughs> we, um, in our book, we show how, 
uh, Mark Short himself uh, and the vice president's team cowered uh, during the second impeachment um, mm-hmm. and were not willing to come forward to tell their stories to hold right. Trump accountable. I mean, I know some of Pence's aides have testified um, in the January 6th committee and Vice President Mike Pence has very much embraced the role he let he had on January 6th in refusing Trump's order to overturn the election. Mm-hmm. But again, in that moment when it actually mattered, they were afraid to do that. Um, and again, what would have happened if Mark Short would have actually told Jamie Raskin when he was frantically begging him to come forward mm-hmm. that, yes, I will get on the stand and I will tell my story. What would have things might have been different? We'll never know. And why do you think that there was or is this hesitation? Like I find on this topic, which just talking about the, the attack on the Capitol that day, people get have emotional reactions and a large portion of the country just doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is which must be chilling for people like you and, and me, you know, certainly. But people like you who were you, were you there that day? I was supposed to be there that day and not being there that day, but it was close. Um, uh, anyway, yeah, look, I mean, there is the, the acuteness of the crisis fatigue is it's stunning, really. I mean, and, and we actually document that in the book, too, even yeah. for the lawmakers. I mean, like on the day of. There was an effort to say, let's impeach him right now. When we go back to the Capitol that night, while tempers are hot, while everybody's furious, while everybody is feeling the terror in their bones, seize this moment. A bunch of Democrats tried to do that. Pelosi wouldn't let them. And a week later, they had figured out how to basically package all of those emotions into the proper political spaces again. And everything kind of was back to kind of the, the normal, non-functional way that things yeah. happen with just a few people still feeling the the ricochet effects of that attack to be willing to cross the aisle and vote to impeach the president. So, you know, if that can happen just in a couple of days, that it's not surprising that we're in this mode right now where some people just don't want to keep having this conversation. And yet that kind of goes back to what you were asking about before, you know, fixing the overall problem. You have to care to want to do the, you know, non-glamorous work of Mm -hmm. doing a systematic overhaul. And and we're in a position where that's not what gets people to pay attention. People who want to see Trump face accountability are still tuning into the January 6th committee hearings, but it's not necessarily having the pull for the rest of the public across the aisle. And, and, And the public's willingness to come along the way and yeah. being overloaded or not really does matter a lot in, in it, it's always mattered for accountability. I mean, you know, we're, we're a long way away from where we were during the Watergate years when everybody was watching things play out on TV, <clears throat> excuse me, when, um, you know, when, when there was a, a groundswell in the country of minds being changed because they were paying attention because they cared. <clears throat> That's not the position that we're seeing the country in right now when it comes to Donald Trump or January 6th. I I would just say that um, when it comes to this impeachment fatigue and people not Mm -hmm. wanting to hear this stuff anymore, this is, again, why you try to do it right the first time. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, right now, Democrats are sort of seen by not only Republicans, but a lot of independent voters as the boy who cried wolf, right? They've done this over and over and over again, and they can't seem to uh, make a dent in Teflon Trump. So, and then in terms of, you know, January 6th, it's, you asked, where are we at the Capitol? Um, I was actually putting the finishes, finishing touches on part three of this book, which was supposed to be the end of the book about the first impeachment, literally (laughs) watching the electoral college when this happened and totally freaking out. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of us cried that day because it was so terrible and it was like, what is happening to our country and the place where we have worked for so long. Mm-hmm. And Karin and I ended up having to tear open our book at a part four and the story <laughs> just kept going and we it just it blew our yeah. modes. It, it just blew our minds because 
the exact thesis that we had in the book about, you know, pulled punches and cut corners and Trump getting away with things and becoming more emboldened, it happened again. And here Mm -hmm. we go again. It's just, it's incredible. And not even just the exact thesis. I mean, look, we all know the story of Jamie Raskin now because he led a very emotional, personally emotional case, right? But he played a huge role in the first impeachment, too, behind the scenes. We were chronicling basically how the exact same cast of characters coming into into interactions with each other in similar fashions repeated the same mistakes twice. And now this is the third the third act, this the January 6th committee process that's cadencing now. And it's not clear that it's going to, in the end, they have had successes that, that they did not have before, but mm-hmm. it's not clear that it's going to kind of be the capstone that solves it and fixes everything. Because situationally, it can't. The president, Trump's not in office anymore. And because of what you pointed out about the country just kind of being exhausted and, yeah. and not willing to listen. And it, the, we are exhausted, but for the lawmakers who actually have to work there, their own physical security, it almost doesn't seem rational in some ways. Yeah. But we, yeah. we, have to, we have to finish this conversation on Sunday when you will join <laughs> us on Face the Nation in person when we're all around the table together and can dig into this uh, a lot more. So Rachel and Karun, thank you both for having this chat with me today and congrats on the book. Thank, thank you. you so much. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.